The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. And today we're going to take a second look at the opening verses of this chapter. And this is Jesus in his last public discourse. It's Tuesday before the crucifixion. And, of course, very soon Jesus would be on the cross and crucified. And Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. A little later when he was standing before Pilate, he told Pilate his purpose of coming into the world. He said, I am here to give you the truth. And it was the truth that caused him to be crucified, and it was the truth that caused these people to turn against him after he had finished all of these things that he says in chapter 23. Now, the truth that Jesus tells here is about false teachers, and in particular, he's dealing with the religious leaders uh, that had deceived them. Uh, These last words that he spoke were in hostile territory. They were in the citadel of the Jewish religion, which was at the temple. And of course, the temple was actually his because he's God. But what they had done was taken it and made it a den of thieves and robbers. And so Jesus speaks to them here, and I want you to listen to what he has to say. Uh, this is just the beginning of some very scathing words that will take place here in the 23rd chapter. We're just going to talk about a part of that this morning. Stand with me once again as we read God's word. Matthew 23, verse number 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." But all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feast and at the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and ye are all brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would be with the message today. Uh, Some things that I have to say will be difficult for some. And we pray, Lord, that everyone would take it in the spirit that it's given. We do want to preach the same way that Jesus preached and give the same truth that he taught. So help us today as we look at the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We haven't read the entire 23rd chapter, but I hope that you'll take time to do that before we actually uh, get to those verses at a later time. But I think that after you read it, you'll see that the manner of speech... Uh, just the way that Jesus spoke would be very difficult to preach that way today. And I think might e- it might even be worse, that, w- that he might even receive a worse reception today because we're so confused about uh, 
what is called Christian brotherhood today and what that does, it really prevents us from criticizing anyone no matter what they believe and no matter how far their beliefs are from the truth. Now, to our shame, I have heard Baptist preachers applaud the Pope and say that he is a a great man. Well, if you call a man who preaches lies and tells people that salvation is dependent upon their good works and that they're saved by sacraments and they must have the blessing of Mary, who is a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ, and they tell people that purgatory is a place where you sweat off your sins and that you need a priest in order to get to God and that they can do magic and turn bread and wine into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and they say and they say and they say if you call a person in a system like that that can teach such things good people and good men then you're going to have a real problem with this passage and if you call deceitful workers of darkness that steal money from poor people through televangelism and preach a health wealth and prosperity gospel and they fake miracles and healings and live in the luxury of the wealth that they've stolen then you're going to have a problem with this passage. And if you call hypocrites that fake their religion and love to flaunt themselves and are conceited and love recognition, if you call them good men, then you're going to have a problem with the passage. And if you're tolerant of everything that moves, no matter how vile and despicable that it is, and call people that commit such sins good people, the ugliest sins imaginable, then you're really going to have a problem with this passage. Now, I know that that's it's not popular preaching. And when I say these things, that what I'm really trying to do is just to give you a sense of the way that Jesus preached. I want to give you a sense of how that he approached people that would teach lies and were hypocrites. Jesus went after these religious leaders. And these were men that the people thought were just paragons of virtue. This 23rd chapter is a reality dose because we see here a picture of Jesus that most people don't even know exists. A very different Jesus than most people think that he was like. And so Jesus stood against all lies. He stood against hypocrisy. And he warned people to watch out for those to whom they had mistakenly committed their souls. And the problem that Jesus faced is still with us today. Now the apostles set the precedent for us as they continued to preach in the same way that Jesus did, and they taught that these kinds of things would be prevalent in Christianity. That until Jesus comes again, we're going to have a problem with people who take the Bible and twist the truth and say all kinds of things that aren't in the Word of God and claim that these are the things that God said. Now, what Jesus did was to take the Word of God and to teach the truth, and the Bible anticipates and expects that we are going to do the same. That when we're confronted with false teachings that we don't shut our mouths and we don't back up and we're not afraid to expose that and teach the truth and tell people you need to stay away from those who are teaching lies. And so the word of God expects that what we're going to do is to denounce them, to expose them and stay away from preachers that are like that. And so we here at Berean, we're not afraid to do that. We're not afraid to stand up against anyone who doesn't teach the truth. And what I would rather do is hurt your feelings and save your soul than to pacify you and make you feel good on the way to hell. So I, I know that that's, that's probably a, a, a rather lovely introduction for you today. And I don't suspect if you didn't like that that you'll get any more comfortable with the rest of what I have to say. 
Now, in our study last week, we, we began to look at this passage, and we started to point out some characteristics of false teachers. And I didn't get very far, and uh, we want to look at this again today, and we're just going to follow this excellent outline that Jesus has given in the passage, just expanding on what he said. Now, first of all, what we looked at and what we're going to talk about today are the marks of a false teacher. The marks of a false teacher. And the first clue is found in verse number 2, where Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And we talked about that last week, and so I'll just briefly describe the issue for you. That sitting in Moses' seat is a euphemism for authority. Uh, This is the... Uh, the place that they sat to teach the word of God, and these false teachers did not have authority. They claimed to speak for God, but they did not speak for God. That's your first point. They claimed to speak for God, but they do not speak for God. Now, Moses was a unique prophet in the Old Testament. He was regarded as chief among the prophets. And God gave Moses the law, and it was by the law that these religious leaders claimed that they lived. And they said that we are teaching what Moses taught, and we're following the law, but they weren't following the law. What they had actually done was to pervert it, and they had added to it. They had obfuscated the law. They were good at dancing around it and trying not to claim that they were false teachers or that they weren't keeping God's law. And they said, we are speaking for Moses, and thus we are speaking for God. And so they sat in Moses' seat. And that referred to this special place that was at the head of the synagogue and a place in the temple where the the, the rabbis would come and they would sit there and they would begin to expand upon the law and on all the quirky traditions that they had added to it. And they claimed that this was God's word and they were speaking with God's authority, but God had nothing at all to do with it. And that's the way it always is with a false teacher. He will swear on his mother's grave that he's telling you the truth. But he's telling you a lie, and he does not speak for God. There are many of them that claim that they have new revelation from God. They go outside of the written word, and they claim that they have something extra, something that you, the neophyte in the pew, would never know unless they were able to tell it to you. Whenever you hear someone say, God spoke to me, or God told me this secret, You need to watch out for that kind of a preacher because you have just encountered a false one. Now, here is what the Word of God teaches, and that is that God has said all that he wanted to say in his Word. He hasn't given us any other revelation, and it is the Word of God by which all preaching must be judged. And if you ever hear anything that's said in addition to God's word or is contrary to God's word, what God has already spoken in the word, then that person is not speaking for God. He may have a message, but it's not God's message. And so we enlarged upon that particular thought last week, and especially about how that we are dependent only upon the inspired word of God. Now today, I want to move on from that, and hopefully we'll get a little bit further, but... I'm sorry, I'm not going to finish the passage this week. Uh, Jesus is so profound in what he says that what he says in just a few verses takes me a long time to get through, and I still won't get all of it. So secondly, we look at another mark of a false teacher found in the passage, and that is that they are hypocrites. 
Verse 2 says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say, and they do not. Now what Jesus is saying here is that when a preacher reads from God's word and he sticks to God's word, then you should listen and obey. As one person said, even a broken clock is right twice a day and a false teacher will sometimes say things that are true. Now what Satan does, he always, like to, he always likes to sprinkle a little bit of truth into the falsehoods, into the errors to make the, what, the, what the preaching uh, seem to be credible. And so when the truth is taught, you take that truth that's taught and you obey that because that may be what God, that is what God said. But then he said, don't do as these false teachers do because they tell you what to do, but they don't do what they tell you what to do. They don't do it for themselves, and so they have very little of the virtues that they preach. And I find it to be quite interesting that among the big-name preachers today and the charismatic movement and the word of faith movement, that their lifestyles belie the holiness that they teach. Now, there's no preacher that is ever going to tell you that you, it's, it's all right for you to commit adultery. And there's not a preacher that's going to tell you, a preacher of the Word of God that's going to tell you that it's all right to live in homosexuality or to tell you that it's all right to build your life on lies. And yet many of the preachers that teach about the holiness that's spoken about in the Bible live scandalous lives, more scandalous than you can even imagine. Right now, the Oxygen Channel, if you have that, they're profiling some prosperity preachers in the L.A. area. And you can watch that for about 15 minutes and it'll make your skin crawl with the lewdness and the hypocrisy of the bottom dwellers. Now, the charismatic movement, as it gains more and more popularity, there seems to be more and more scandal to report. Over the past... 30 years, there's been a non-stop of perversion that comes through that movement. Now, it seems to me that a person who has enough of the Holy Spirit that he can speak in tongues would not likely consort with prostitutes or look for gay sex in public bathrooms. The same people that says that the Holy Spirit gives them special revelation are the same ones that drag Christianity through the mud and make it a laughing stock for all the rest of us to deal with. And you would think that someone who claims to have this supernatural power of the Spirit and that God speaks to them on a daily basis, that they would have some sort of special protection, at least some sort of hedge protection that God would give them that would keep them glued to an upstanding moral lifestyle. But that's not what you find. They're hypocritical. They're just like old alley cats, immoral Immoral things and scandal follow them like a lost puppy dog. And you know they're not biblical because their lives are all about prosperity. It's about material gain. And have you ever wondered about this, why, and this is statistically true, why that the poorest Christians are the ones that support the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? That's statistically true, and you would think that if what they were telling was the truth, they would actually be the richest of all Christians. Now, the preachers are fabulously wealthy. The poor people keep funneling all their money into that, and it goes into the preacher's pockets, and they hope that what will happen to them is they'll get rich like the preacher because they've been told that the, the preacher is wealthy because he's done God's will, and he's God's man, and he's following God's voice. 
But that same guy is the one who has the holiness of the serpent in the garden. Now, the poorest people believe that kind of thing because they want to get rich. They, they want God's magic. They want God to be a sugar daddy that makes all of that happen. And so they believe that God's greatest interest is to help them move help them move on up to the east side so they can finally get their piece of the pie. And if you don't understand that reference, you're probably too young for the preaching here. (laughs) But the desire there is for, for everybody to get rich, and we know who gets rich in the scheme. It ought to be illegal, but we call it religion. And when people don't get rich, the preacher says, oh, well, you, you just didn't have enough faith. Or you didn't send in enough money. You need to send in some more. And what do they do? They send in more. And so he just keeps lining his pockets with all the money that comes in. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That's a verse about sympathy. That the false teacher has no sympathy for the person that he lies to. The word of faith preachers collect the money and they don't care that the people are poor and they don't care that they've told them lies. They don't care that what they preach is going to send people to hell. I saw a video of one of these ministries the other day and this ministry took in $50 million in one year. And you know what the total amount of their benevolent spending out of that $50 million was? $348. That was the record out of $50 million that people gave to this ministry. Now, I know there are some of them that give more than that, but they don't give proportionately more according to what's sent into them. Somebody asked me the other day what I thought of Pat Robertson. Well, what do you think of a preacher that has a billion-dollar empire that has a private jet and a private airstrip I mean, why wouldn't we be asking, why doesn't he come down from his mountain and use that money and feed it back into the work of the ministry? I mean, isn't that what God has called us to do? I mean, is is the wealth that we have to be consumed upon us? The Bible has very little to say about the advantages of wealth, but it sure has a lot to say about the deceitfulness of riches. And when a preacher becomes fabulously wealthy and consumes it on his lifestyle, then you don't have to second guess who his God is. And so a false teacher will show his true colors with a hypocritical lifestyle. Many of them are immoral, and if they're not in some kind of sexual trouble, they're in trouble with with cheating people and lying to them. And the Bible speaks against that kind of hypocrisy. And I would be lying to you if I said there's not a little bit of that in all of us. That comes with the human condition. But when you see that assert itself and it takes over at the highest levels of leadership, then you're looking at false prophets. And in case you need some names to go along with this, the big names like Pat Robertson and T.D. Jakes and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Meyer... The whole bunch of them are filled not only with hypocrisy, but just about every aberrant doctrine that you can think of. They're not led by the Holy Spirit. There's just so little truth in that. And I I could stay on this subject all day long. We could just, just deal with this all day long, talking about so much of this that goes on out there with religious programming in the world today, with all of this stuff that's happening. You know what I'd really love to do? I would love to get in a room with Joyce Meyer. 
I mean, she is so attractive, she drives me crazy. But I'd like to get into a room with her, and, and I'd like to get in a room with her and Jezebel. And I'd like to see if I could tell them apart, to see who's who. You know, that's what Revelation calls her. Revelation says that, or Paul says, that a woman's place is not to preach. A woman's place in the church is to keep silent. She's not to take authority over men. And Revelation says that a woman who does that is a Jezebel. And a man who would sit there and listen to a woman preacher is a weak-kneed Ahab. They deserve each other. But I'm venting a little bit now. I mean, uh, when, I, when I hear lies from a male preacher, that's bad enough. But when you add a woman in there, that just ratchets up, uh, ratchets up the grief for me. And, and uh, so I have to be careful here. It's Sunday morning. And it's too early in the week to have a heart attack. So we'll try to go on. Thirdly, how can you tell a false teacher? Well, thirdly, they want recognition. But all their works, verse 5 says, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and chief seats in the synagogue. Now, this was really the goal of these people. They loved the recognition they received more than anything. Now, money, that was good, but recognition was an opiate that was more powerful than money. What they did, and the money's okay if it helps to fuel the pride of recognition. Now, if you'll turn back to the sixth chapter for just a minute... Uh, This wasn't the first time that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. He was on their case because of their love of recognition. Chapter 6 is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus here is speaking to the common people just as he was in chapter 23. Now, Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 1, Jesus says to them, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly." And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And when the Pharisees gave their alms, and the alms are the, are the giving for the poor, when they gave to the poor, it wasn't because they were compassionate people. It wasn't because they loved to help poor people, but rather it afforded them another opportunity to be applauded by men for them to say, oh, what a great benevolent person that this is. Their reward was the adoring recognition of the people because God was certainly not going to give them any. And then Jesus said when they prayed, they would stand on the street corners and they would get to the places where there was a lot of traffic and they would cry out and people would be sure to hear what they were praying. And they prayed these long, tedious prayers that made them look godly and holy and pious. And people are going to say, certainly that's a person that's in touch with God. I mean, if you can pray for a long, long time, then surely that means that you must know God. You know, here's a news flash for you, that most of the prayers in the Bible are known for their brevity and not for their long-windedness. Do you remember when Peter was trying to walk on the water 
And he began to pray when he started to, to sink. And he said, oh, our gracious heavenly Father, God who art the creator of heaven and earth, God who dwelleth between the wings of the, of the cherubim on top of the mercy seat, come and deliver us today, oh God. That's not what he said. He said, Lord, save me. Direct and to the point. Now that's what you do when you pray. Get to the point. Pray in the way that you're supposed to. The only one who needed to hear that prayer was Jesus, and it told what he needed and who he was praying to. Well, Jesus says, you don't need to be like that. A long prayer is not necessarily a good prayer. That's not what makes it good. And then, and then what about recognition? Do preachers want recognition? Is there, is there a problem with being recognized? Well, you, you know, I think you probably heard my story and my experiences about going to Bible conferences. This week I'm going to a Bible conference, and this one that I'm going to is not like this, but I've been to a lot that are. That in a Bible conference, you have first-tier, second-tier, third-tier, and fourth-tier preachers. The first-tier preachers are the ones who get to preach at the conference. The second-tier preachers give a seminar. And the third-tier preachers get called on to pray. And then the fourth-tier preachers are the ones like me. We just get to sit in the pew and listen to what's going on. Now, the problem is that every preacher wants to be a first-tier preacher. And so when the third-tier preachers are called on to pray, what they do is they just outline a sermon in their prayer. And so they, they preach a sermon in the prayer. So they're going to get recognized no matter what. Now, my wife accuses me of that sometimes. Uh, she says, well, you preach for an hour, and then when you get to the end, you pray, and you preach another sermon in the prayer. And what we call that is good preaching. Because what you do is you tell people what you're going to say, then you say it, and then when you get done, you tell them what you said. And that's what I do in that closing prayer. I tell you what I said. So the third-tier preacher, he's going to get his due. So he just outlines that sermon in the prayer. All of that is called recognition. Now what the Pharisees wanted, they wanted to be seen and heard. They did all of their works to be seen of men. Now one of the things that Jesus says here is that they strap on their phylacteries. And I've showed you pictures of this before. Dalton, can you show us here some of the pictures? Uh, now let, let me explain to you where we are here. This is in front of the western wall in Jerusalem, which is the most holy site for the Jewish people today. The western wall is the, the last standing part of the old temple mount when it was, uh, uh, before it was destroyed. And that wall still stands there today. And so the Jews will come to this place and, and they will pray. It's their most sacred place. In fact, it's the closest place that they can get to the temple mount today. But they stand there in front of the wall and they strap on these leather, leather pieces around their arms. And here you see one, he's got it on his arm and he's adjusting the little box on his head. If you go on just a little bit further, that next one, there you see uh, the box on top of this, uh, this man's head. And in that little box, they would put scriptures. And in the next one, you see the most holy person of all standing in front of the wall. I, don't, I didn't actually need any phylacteries for this. Uh, an interesting thing, though, about the picture that you see all these little... Those are pieces of paper. Those are prayers that are stuffed into the cracks of the wall. But the Pharisees, 
this is what they would do. They would tie on those phylacteries. They would take that little box and they would put it on their head. And in that box were the scriptures. And they did that to show how holy they were and how near and dear the word of God was to them. Now, that is a very interesting ritual, and yet it's never commanded in the scripture. Now, to be fair about it, though, Moses in the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 said this to the people. He said, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Listen, verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be its frontlets between thine eyes. Now, the Jews in Moses' time knew that that was a figurative statement. That Moses told them to bind them as frontlets between their eyes. And he didn't mean what you need to do is go out and skin a cow and make a leather box and tie that thing to your head. I mean, they knew that's not what he meant. They knew that what he meant was that the word of God was to be their guide, that it's to be important to you, it's to be near to you, that it's to guide your mind and it's to control you, it's to control the way that you think and the way that you live. And, and they never thought of strapping a box to their head. And so you'll never find that in the Old Testament. No Jew ever did that. But then in the intertestamental period, when the sect of the Pharisees arose, they took everything literally. And so they did that to separate themselves from the people and to make them look holy. And if there was anything that could make them look holy, they were all for that. And then Jesus goes on. He says, they enlarge the borders of their garments. And what he's actually speaking of there are tassels that they put on the edges of their robes. Now, you can actually find that in the Old Testament. We can take a look at Numbers 15, verse number 37. And all of you that are in fundamentals class, you know that's the Pentateuch. That's part of the law of Moses. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So they would read this scripture. Numbers fifteen thirty-seven. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them. Them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Now you see the word fringe actually means a tassel. And God told them to put tassels on their garments and that was a sign that they were different and they were a people that belonged to him. Jesus actually wore tassels on his robe. Uh, when we read the story of the woman that grabbed Jesus in the crowd and it says that he, she touched the hem of his garment, this is what she did. She grabbed one of those tassels that were on the edge of Jesus' robe. So it was okay to have tassels. God said do that. But the Pharisees took that to an extreme. And they were content to have a little tassel. They wanted to make their tassels big. And so they enlarged them because people who have big tassels are better than those who have ordinary tassels. Now today, what Jewish men do is they put a long tassel on their prayer shawl. Let me, let me show you a picture of this. And you can see that. See it hanging down right here? Right there? And right there? Those are the long tassels that they put on. In the next picture, you see it hanging down here really well there on 
next to this man's coat. And then in the next picture, I wanted to show you this because they also have this right here. And uh, that, uh, <laughs> that comes from the NRA law of self-defense. That's in Luke 22:36. You might want to look that up. So the Pharisees, they did all of these things. I mean, they had these long tassels. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted recognition. They wanted people to see them. They wanted people to think, we're closer to God than people who have puny little tassels. And so they have their big long ones. Now, the point of all of this, and the reason I bring it up today, is that there are still people who make an issue of these kinds of things, that they want to make their clothes a holy thing. That holiness is measured by the kinds of clothes that you wear. Now, for years, fundamental Baptist women wore culottes. And they wore culottes because culottes are supposed to be godlier than walking shorts. And they didn't wear pants because wearing a skirt was godlier. And then they got into exactly how long that a dress needs to be or a skirt has to be. And so they made knee, uh, little girls kneel on the floor and they would measure to see if their skirt was a quarter of an inch above their knee. And if the knee is showing, then that's an ungodly thing. Now, I want you to hear me what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be conscious of the way that you dress. Absolutely, ladies, you need to be conscious of the way that you dress. And you ought not to wear anything that calls undue attention to yourself. But if the reason that you do this is because you think that that is going to make you holy, then you've just stepped over into Phariseeism because you, what you wear is not going to make you holy. Holiness is the thing that happens in the heart, and your heart has to be right. Sanctification is a matter of the heart, and it's not produced by some kind of clothing that you wear. And when churches get into this and they keep rules and regulations that they think are going to make them holy, they've stepped over into Phariseeism. Cookie-cutter rules are not going to make you godly because this is what can happen to you. You can be a mean-spirited person and you can have evil in your heart and you can curse where you go and you can carry on in secret with your sins and your heart can be as wicked as a madam in a bordello. And that happens to people. Your heart has to be right because God sees far beyond what you wear. But at the same time, God sees what you wear. Do you understand what I'm saying? God does see what you wear. So people that put clothing, rules, and all of that stuff into practice, that's to control. Those are methods of judgment, and that's what ministries use them for. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because I was raised in that. I know this. And, and I will have to say this, that usually the intentions are good. Most of the time, the intentions are good. But what happens when you do this is you start to produce judgmental people. And they judge people on what they wear and the length of their hair and things like that. And what the Pharisees did, they just covered up all of the wickedness and the sin that they had in their hearts by the clothes that they wore. And they made people think they were godly and holy. All of that is a recognition thing. It's an issue of pride. And pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. But Jesus is not through with them on the issue. And we're running out of time today, so let me squeeze in a last comment here. Let's look at verse number 6. He says, They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and chief seats in the synagogues. Now, we'll deal with this a little bit more at another time, but they love to be recognized by sitting in the chief seats in the synagogue. So what they love to do is to get up front where everybody could see them. Now, here's a striking thing to me when I think about the, the, how ornately dressed 
are the prelates of Roman Catholicism. That the Pope has his robes and the cardinals have theirs of crimson red. The Pope glitters with gold and he sits in a place in St. Peter's Basilica that is a throne. And this goes right on down to the priests that separate themselves with a little collar that they wear. And all of that stuff that separates them from the people says that they're different from the people. But do you know that it goes even further than that? You get into this holy clothing thing and people can really get mixed up. You have the Mormons that have their holy underwear. And I don't mean underwear with holes in them. They might have that too. But they have this holy underwear that they wear. And, and the Roman Catholics have an article of clothing that they call a scapular. And at first that was just a separating garment. In fact, when that first came into practice, uh, the monastic orders would use those. It's a piece of clothing that they wore that just separated them and told what their monastic order was. Sort of like our kids in the Pioneer Club that they have the little vest that they wear. And uh, that, that was just a, a thing to show what their, as I said, their monastic order was. But the Roman Catholics took off on that, and, and they started to change the, the purpose of that scapular. They made it a separating garment, but then they started to give it mystical powers. And, and they said that if you wore one of those, that you would have special indulgences and special graces. And if you wore a really special one, that the Virgin Mary would, would give you special intercession. She would plead special intercession for you if you wore this particular one of blue. And, there, and, and so do you see this? The right clothes, they're saying, have the power to make you holy. And that's what happens when you get mixed up about sanctification and you make it an outward thing rather than an inward thing. And so it's not a long stretch from culottes to scapulars if you have the doctrine of sanctification confused. Now what Jesus is building up to here is that all of this is to denounce a works-based salvation. And that's the end point of all the hypocrisy and all the pride and the recognition. It is a works-based salvation and it focuses on the individual. A works-based salvation always promotes the individual. And God does not want the focus to be on you. But it seems like the whole religious world is just consumed with me and me and more of me. What's going to make me happy? What do I need to be happy? And God's primary focus is never on what makes you happy. His primary focus is always on him. And you know something? If you really know Christ and salvation, what makes God happy will always make you happy. And I'm not talking about skippity-doo-dah happy. I'm talking about happy like you can face everything that comes in your life because you know that God is with you, that he lives beside you, that his presence is there. And so you can go out and you can live under a bridge if that's where God's will leads you. And I don't say that as a flippant thing or an unkind thing. I'm just saying that what the Word of God says, that what we do is we seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto us. And the thing that people miss is they say, seek God, but they forget the righteousness part. And that's all, this all goes together. Seek God and His righteousness. And so what Jesus is headed here for is a total denunciation of self-righteousness and a works-based righteousness and he rejects in the strongest of terms anyone who teaches that and says that they speak for him anyone that says that it takes God and me to save me is wrong
There is no such thing as a synergistic salvation like that, that it takes God and me to save me. The way that God saves us is by grace through faith, and that is the only way that we'll ever be saved. And the reason that is is because God is not going to allow anyone to share in his glory. God wants the glory for your salvation. But what false teachers do is they keep people away from that truth. And they may not look so bad on the surface. You, you look at them and you say, wow, that's a really a, a godly person. And they'll walk around and they'll prance around and they'll shout hallelujah and glory to God and raise their hands in the air and, and walk around like a proud peacock with a Bible in their hand. And they'll throw in a few tongue talks in there too. A little bit of speaking in tongues and you think, oh, whoa, that's a holy person. But you need to be forewarned about all of that. Ostentatious displays are the works of the devil. Now here's the thing about it. I know that the Holy Spirit is not in those places. And I know that by the doctrines that are taught. I know by the hypocrisy that's there. I know by the pride. I know by the lies that God is not there. But what I can tell you is that God is here today. That his Holy Spirit is here. And I don't want you to take my word for that. What I want you to do is take the message that's been preached and compare it to the Word of God. Take your Bible and compare the message to the Scriptures, and then I'll tell you whether the Holy Spirit is behind what's been said today. And so I give you the marks, and I tell you the names, and I bring out the heresies, because that's what Jesus did. This is the way that he taught. He wants you to trust him and him alone. He saves by his marvelous grace and in no other way. Now, I do know this. There's a false teacher that is lurking out there. And if you're not careful, you might be his next victim. And I don't want that to happen to you. So I say come away from that and come into the safety of God's marvelous truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and... There are things that we have to say that are difficult and they're not said in the spirit of meanness, certainly not. We, we want to preach your word and we want people to understand what truth is. We can't be saved by anything but the truth. And so we have to stay right there all of the time. And we decry, we deplore those who are false teachers, who are hypocrites that preach this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that are in uh, this thing of new revelation that God gives today and all of those things. We, we, we stand against that because we know that your word stands against it. And we know that your, that your word teaches us to be a holy people, and we want to be that. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to live the lives that we preach. So help us, Lord. Be with our people today. Uh, work in someone's heart this morning. Cause them to turn to you in salvation and come to you in faith. And we just give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.